John chapter 7. So glad to have you here today. If you're here as a first-time guest and visitor, welcome to Heritage Baptist Church. We're glad you're here today, and we pray that you'll find the church very, very encouraging and friendly. And if you're just here as a member and attendee, thank you for being here this morning. John chapter 7. If your neighbor doesn't have a Bible, please share your Bible with them. Help them to find their place, especially if they have the right translation of the Bible, the King James Version translation. Hope you'll be back tonight. I'm encouraged. We're uh, do, finishing up our series on family portrait. Now, three more messages on that, I think. And uh, tonight, we're looking at one of Jacob's son. His name is Gad. And the Bible has one verse about him. And that verse says in Genesis 49, 19, a troop shall overcome him, but he shall overcome at the last. And I want you to come tonight to just be encouraged about the overcoming of the Christian life. And you just be here tonight. That will be greatly encouraging your Christian life. Verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, <clears throat> which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Father, this morning we're so thankful for the music we've heard <clears throat> and we've sung that has so encouraged our hearts and has prepared us for this place of worship. Thank you for the offering that was taken, that's been prayed for. And Lord, for everyone who's assembled here in church, we pray for those who could not be here today because uh, perhaps their bodies are infirm with sickness or perhaps they're traveling out of town because of business. And we just pray that, Lord, you'd undertake for their spiritual need. And this morning, first and foremost, we pray that our hearts would come with adoration and worship to honor and please you today. And then secondly, Lord, we come to receive from you, from the Word of God, uh, something that will help us through this week, something that will change our lives, something that will help us today to be a better Christian. We read today how Jesus stood in the midst on the very last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, and he cried out about people who are thirsting. He says, if those people come to drink, out of their bellies shall flow rivers of living water. For some this morning who are new to the faith, probably that whole concept of rivers of living water are, just sounds so foreign to them and, and something that intrigues their interest. And this morning, I pray that all of us would recognize the spiritual thirst in our soul, the spiritual thirst in our lives for Christ and for the power of God. And through that, we pray that we would meet your conditions and come to you, God, with hungering hearts so that out of our lives would flow the power of the Spirit, those rivers of living water today. We pray this morning that you'll take from us weariness. We pray that you take from us, God, a lethargic spirit and, uh, Lord, perhaps distractions from stress and other calamities perhaps that we've had in our hearts. And just help us this morning to focus on how much you love us and, Lord, what you have for us today. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> For those of you new to the church or perhaps been here intermittently, we've been in a series for several weeks from the Gospel of John and actually through all the Gospels entitled Nothing But the Truth. And we want to see truths from God's Word that teaches us something very, very important about doctrine and about our devotion for Christ. And this morning, I want you to notice that Jesus points out a need in verses 37 to 39, and that need centers itself around one word, the word satisfaction. We want to look at the truth about satisfaction. 
Now, satisfaction is, uh, is, is when we come to this place where we've achieved a state of complete contentment. It's a place where we, it's, it was when we have achieved a state of complete contentment. When you're satisfied, you say, you have enough. When you're satisfied, you say, I'm fulfilled. When you're satisfied, you are filled with immense gratification. When you're satisfied, you're at a place where you don't feel like any improvement is needed. You have everything you need, anything you ever wanted. You're at this place of satisfaction. Notice Jesus uh, says something very, very, very uh, moving in verse 37. And he, may, and, he, and, he, and he equates physical desire with spiritual desire in our study this morning. And he stood up on the last day of that feast, which we'll get into in a moment, and he cried out above the roar of the crowd. And you can imagine a man's voice being above that of the crowd. Thousands of people. And he cried out, and I'm not sure if he cupped his hands around his, his mouth. I don't think he needed to. Because Jesus cried out, if any man thirsts. I don't know if you've ever been to a place where you've been really, really thirsty. But if you've ever been to a place where you're desperately thirsty, you, know that you can remember even right now how terrible that feeling was. When you're very, very thirsty and you're, you're desperately thirsty, you've been, you realize there's no water resources near you. You may be miles away from getting to anywhere where you can get access to water. There's no water fountain. There's no water bottle. There's no fluids of any kind. As time goes along, you're burning in your throat. You feel dehydrated. Your lips are, 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 are chapping. Your throat is parched. Uh, you're, you're at this place where you have this insatiable desire that you've got to have water. And you're thinking, I've got to have water. I've got to have water. I've got to get the water soon. I just don't feel like I can make it. Experts say that you can go perhaps three to four weeks without eating food. But with water, it's much different. Some survivalists say that a person could actually stretch themselves out over a week without water, but realistically, most likely the average person would probably be in very terrible shape or would perish if they didn't have water for three or four days. And uh, we look at that situation, perhaps somebody stuck in a, in a blazing heat like in a desert, they may last even less than that. Jesus said, if any man thirsts, the Jews understand what it was to be thirsty outside the walls of Jerusalem. Outside that great city, that if you were stuck out there for a long period of time without any water with you, you would become very thirsty. If you didn't get to water source very quickly, you would die of thirst. Jesus talked about thirsting people. If any man thirsts, I don't know if it's dawned on you, but we live in a society, there's a thirsting. People are looking for something to satisfy the thirst in their soul. And it might be this morning, I'm talking to a man or woman or boy or girl. I'm talking to someone deep down inside. You haven't told your husband, you haven't told your wife, you haven't told your father, you haven't told your mother, you haven't told your best friend, but deep down inside, there may be a thirsting inside of you for something that this world cannot satisfy. Money cannot satisfy it. Possessions and accumulations cannot satisfy it. An increase in position cannot satisfy it. More relationships cannot satisfy it. Going to illegal dealings does not satisfy it. There's something just craving inside of you that you'd have 
that thirst met. And Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. And he said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. What did he mean by rivers of living water? What did he mean, come and drink? What did he mean by thirst? We're going to look at that this morning and be encouraged in our hearts that Jesus tells us the truth about satisfaction. Notice, first of all, this morning, if you have your outline in front of you, I want you to consider the background to all this. We must look at the background. We must look at the situation. I actually preached a message about 15, 16 months ago on the same passage. Those of you who heard it on a Sunday night, it's not the same message, though the background information is the same, not the same message. But I preached a message on the same passage here that applied to us and where we're at as Christians. But I want you to notice the background, and we see, first of all, a wonderful celebration. Go back to the beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. In chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, it says, After these things Jesus walked in Galilee, for he would not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. Preceding this, if you remember, we're back in chapter 6 for several messages. And in chapter 6, we saw Jesus on the, out in the desert area of Bethsaida, and there he fed the multitudes, 5,000 men plus women and children. He took five very simple barley loaves, two little simple anchovy fishes, and he multiplied them in the eyes of his apostles, as well as the multitudes were there, and fed everybody <coughs> more than enough. And they took up 12 basketfuls of the fragments. From there, we find our Lord sending his disciples away on a ship to go from Bethsaida on that side. Of the, of the east to the west side back to the shoreline of Galilee where these men lived and where Jesus ministered. He sent them from east to west. Jesus met them out there in the water. Remember we saw the great subject of faith and how Jesus walked on water to meet them and calmed the storm. And uh, Jesus, Jesus had been, been in that area and then later on we find Jesus going to Jerusalem and the Jews manifesting their hatred for him as he reveals himself as the living bread and, and those same people had followed him and they didn't, but they weren't looking for a Jesus that would satisfy their spiritual need. They were looking for a Jesus that would meet their physical desires. And so, of course, these people were rejecting of him. And we read something very startling as we get to chapter 6. We read in verse 66 that it says, From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. When Jesus started talking about being living bread and talking about being the bread of life and taking of him, and you must take all of him in order to know who he is. And he spoke about his deity that he and the Father are one and the same. And talking about that in eternity past that he and the Father have always been. In eternity future, they always will be. And as of eternity present, that moment of time that he and the Father are one and the same. Those people didn't want to hear it. The Jews didn't want to hear that he was the bread of life. They didn't want to hear that he was superior than the manna that was in the wilderness. They didn't want to hear that he was superior to their father Abraham. They didn't want to hear that he was superior to Moses who was the great lawgiver. They just were content by being stuck in the past and living under their traditions and rituals and ceremony. And so the Bible says those who had followed him. And you can't really say they were true disciples because they were there because of the hype, not because he gave them hope. They were there because they wanted something physical. They didn't want what he could give them spiritually. And so it says many of those disciples walked away from him. Well, Jesus, now as we get to chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, He's in the area of Galilee. As he's in the area of Galilee, the Jews, of course, there's great hostility towards Jesus Christ at that moment of time. And by the way, if there was great hostility then, think about today the great hostility people have about Jesus right now. And so there was great hostility towards him. And there, if you notice in chapter 7, it tells us that the timing of everything was the feast of the tabernacles of the Jews. Would you notice verse 2? 
Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacles was at hand. Now the Jews had three feasts. Three feasts that everyone came to Jerusalem. They converged in Jerusalem to participate in. There were a lot of things they came to Jerusalem for, but three feasts specifically they came to Jerusalem for. All the men were required in the book of Leviticus to come to these three feasts, but everyone converged in the city of Jerusalem. One was the Feast of Tabernacles, which I'll describe in a moment. The other one was the Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover. The Feast of Unleavened Bread or the Passover commemorates what God did for the Jews back in Exodus chapter 12 on the last night that they would spend in Egypt. There, God would deliver them through a death angel. There, they were to take a lamb and kill a lamb and take the blood of the lamb and put, it, and put that blood on the side post and over the threshold. And every Jewish home, every home that had the blood of the lamb covering their home, the death angel passed over them. The Passover is a representation of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a wonderful picture of the lamb that was killed and the blood that was applied of our Lord Jesus Christ who's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so the Jews would have to return back to Jerusalem normally around the month of April and there at that time, they would celebrate the Feast of the Passover. Well, after the Feast of Passover, or Unleavened Bread was done, then there would be another feast 50 days later that they would celebrate. And that feast was called the Feast of Pentecost. We know about the Feast of Pentecost because we read about that there over, over in... Um, over in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came down upon the church. Now the Feast of Pentecost was a celebration time, was being thankful for the good harvest that God gave them, his blessings. It was about 50 days after the Passover ended. And the Feast of Pentecost, again, the Jews would assemble there and to get some insight on that, we can read over in Acts chapter 2 to read about the great celebration of things. But the third feast that they had to be at was the Feast of the Tabernacles. Now this was a big one because the Feast of the Tabernacles was a celebration of harvest. It was a celebration of what God had done for them after he brought them out of Egypt. You see, Passover was when they, God, God delivered them from Egyptian bondage. But we go over here to the Feast of Tabernacles and a reminder how God took care of the Jews for 40 years while they were in the wilderness. And they would, the Jews, when they did so, they would come to Jerusalem from everywhere. And they would be from all places. And they would be all over the city of Jerusalem. You can imagine, they would put up these tents or these booths. And these tents or booths were where people would dwell in for, for for eight days because the feast, of, uh, the feast of Tabernacles would last for about eight days. And they would dwell in these booths as a reminder to them that they lived in tents during that 40-year wilderness time, but God took care of them. And during this Feast of the Tabernacles, they would dwell there and they had to have a little bit of an opening on the top of their tent so they could see the sky at night to remind it how God shed forth his love upon them. And uh, if they did it on a roof or they did it in an alleyway, they had to make sure that nothing was obstructing the view that would be on the top of the tent there. And so for for eight days, they would celebrate this wonderful feast of the tabernacle that would commemorate the law of the harvest and the harvesting that God gave them and his blessings. We read about the feast of tabernacles being so great that we go over to the book of 1 Kings in chapter 8. And in 1 Kings chapter 8, read about King Solomon on the day they dedicated the temple on that great day that there was also around the time of the feast of the tabernacles and Jews everywhere as that great temple was being dedicated to the Lord and the glory of God came down. We find the Jews everywhere were sitting and sleeping in tents and taking their stay there. We read again about the Feast of the Tabernacles or booze, or as the Hebrews would call it, the Feast of Sukkot. They would, they would go there, and we find in Nehemiah chapter 8, many years later, after Nehemiah had led the Jews in rebuilding the walls and the temple had been rebuilt. 
After the Babylonian captivity and the Persians were in rule, we find there on the day that Ezra opened the word of God in, in Nehemiah chapter 8 and he read the word of God, that they had the Feast of the Tabernacles of time. And it's a very touching passage of scripture, which I don't have time to read to you right now, but you can look it up in Nehemiah chapter 8. And it describes how they set up these booths or these tents and they dwelt inside there and they waited upon God and God waited upon them. And we see the wonderful fellowship that the people of God had with the Lord there. We read about it again in Zechariah 14. Zechariah 14, you might want to write this down. Zechariah 14 is a great prophetic chapter. Lord willing, sometime this year I'm praying about preaching through the book of Revelation. We're, in these, we're kind of just seeing a lot of things happen in our world right now. And I think it's good for us to be wise about the book of Revelation and be wise about prophecy and things of that nature. But Zechariah 14 speaks about the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's when we come back with him at the end of the seven years of tribulation and the Lord established his kingdom on earth. And it speaks about Jerusalem. It says this in Zechariah 14, that rivers of living water shall flow out of Jerusalem. And so as we look at here at this Feast of Tabernacles, there's a lot of things that happened in the Old Testament that were very familiar in the minds of the Jews. As we read later on in John chapter 7 verse 38, and Jesus speaks about rivers of living water, they knew what he was speaking about. When Jesus talked about thirsting, they knew what he was thinking about. And so we read chapter 7 verse 2, that this wonderful celebration, the Feast of the Tabernacles was come. You have to understand how the Feast of the Tabernacles was, was commemorated. Every single day in the morning, the priests would get up very early in the morning. There would be a great procession of people that would follow the priests. Many of these pilgrims who came from out of town would be part of this procession. Many of the people that were citizens of, of Jerusalem would be those citizens. And what he would do is he would lead them out of the city of Jerusalem. And as they walked out of Jerusalem, they would walk outside of the city. And way outside of the city there, they would go down where the Pool of Siloam is. If you get a moment, take a Bible map and look as, the, as, it, as you just see the descent there. As they come out of the, out of the city of Jerusalem and make their way, probably it was a good 30-minute walk perhaps, as they walked out of the city of Jerusalem from where the altar and the place of worship was. And they would walk all the way down to the Pool of Siloam, where we read in John chapter 5 that Jesus healed a man that was there at the Pool of Siloam, here at that pool as he waited every day for someone to come and help him. And so Jesus would, the, 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 the priest would come down to the pool of Siloam and there he would hold this wonderful pitcher. Now I've got a silver pitcher but he held a golden pitcher there. We couldn't find a golden pitcher there and I didn't want to spend the money to do it just for the illustration. Amen, you know. But we're going to use the silver one. We've got to save money. We're in a, we're in a debt reduction program right now. Amen, you know. But, uh, but we took, we, we used, but this will do. Amen, you can still see your face on it. Amen. So he took, he took this gold pitcher and he would go down and he would go down the pool of Siloam and he would dip it inside there and fill it up to the brim. Now I've got, a, I've got a clear one here so you can just imagine. He filled it up and would have all this water. Excuse me here. You have a if you come down, just be careful you don't kneel here later on. Okay? And so he would fill up that pitcher with water and all those people were watching there. Now when he did that, the Jews, as they assembled, they did this one thing. On their right hand, on their, le on their right hand, excuse me, their left hand, they would hold a citrus fruit. The citrus fruit was called the ergob. In their left hand, they would hold three branches. There would be the branch of a palm, and of a willow, and of a myrtle. And all of those palms were commemorating this feast of booze because some of them, they would put leaves and branches around there, uh, around these booths or these tents they made. 
And as this procession is following the priest, if you can imagine with me, he's coming down, they're leading the way, and they're waving their palms, they're holding this, this, this citrus in their hand, because the citrus was a representation of the blessing of harvest that God gave them, how God faithfully gave them rain, and the soil was good, and God held back famine, and God held back dirth, and they're waving these palms, and, and these, these, these three leaves, these, what they call the uh, uh, lukab, the lulab, the lulab here, they're, they're waving the lulab, and the ergot in one hand, they're falling behind. Along the way, if you look it up later on, they would be reciting Psalms 118, which talks about faith in God and believing in the Lord and praising God. And you read Psalms 118, it talks about it's better to put your trust in the Lord than to put your trust in man. And so you can imagine for maybe 30 minutes or longer, you find this priest leading the way with all the Jews. They're waving this, these, these palms and, and willows and, and, uh, and, 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 and this myrtle, these myrtle branches. They're waving along the way and holding up their ergob and they're praising God. And they're reciting Psalms 118. They probably memorized the whole psalm. And then they would also, they would also have in their mind uh, Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, which talks about drawing water out of a living well, which speaks about our Lord Jesus Christ. You look it up a little bit later on. And the priest would go down, as I said, and he'd fill up that pitcher with water, and they're reciting that. And then he would lead the procession all the way back around. He'd hold that pitcher in his hand. He'd hold it up high so the people could see it. As he's holding up high, would lead them back. Uh, I'm walking a little bit faster than he would, but he would lead them back all the way up to the back to the city of Jerusalem, back to the altar. And there on the altar, the priests would come to the altar, and the people with him. And he'd walk. He'd walk one time around the altar, and as he did so, he would hold the pitcher way up, and then he would pour the water out as a symbol of a drink offering. A drink offering. If you're familiar, though, in the Bible, sp- speaks about the pouring out of our lives, about a life that's fully surrendered to the Lord. As as Paul talks about that in, in Philippians chapter 2 of being a drink sacrifice, a, a pouring out of our offering, a pouring out of our lives. And, and he speaks about just the necessity of God's people realizing that God wants us to pour out our hearts before him, pour our lives out and give our lives to the Lord. And we'd pour that out. And there'd be such a great, great rejoicing among the Jews that they would recite uh, Isaiah chapter 12 verse 3. And Isaiah 12 3 would talk about water coming out of these wells of water. In fact, it says this, therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. You see in the mind of the Jews, they're thinking about their forefathers like Isaac and Abraham who dug those wells. And they were thinking about back in those days, they didn't have, they didn't have these, the engineering we have today to bring water sources in. Back in those old days, back in those pilgrim days, and back in those patriarch days, and back in the days of even David when they were sheep herding, things like that, that they had to rely on someone finding a well. And they would keep the well for generation after generation. And those wells, they made sure wherever they went to well, it was a place where it was fed by an underground spring. They wanted to make sure the water was bubbling up because they wanted a well that had living water. It was fed by an underground spring. They knew that if they dug a well that was just a water spot but it's just water that accumulated from the bottom but wasn't being fed by underground springs that it wasn't living water and it could be very deadly to them as well as their livestock. And so as they dug these wells they would look for these wells that were fed by underground springs that were bubbling up. I remember years ago that a friend of mine took me through the uh, Coal Canyon area of Castro Valley, and he just, we were in a, in a four by four, and he, we just kind of drove in the area, and I think my wife was with me, and he was just showing us his land, and just kind of, he was a land developer, he was kind of just sharing his vision about what he was going to develop it, and I thought, man, I don't know how this guy's going to develop this area. There's just trees you've got to knock out here, and there's, land, there's, a, there's a lot of movement you've got to do here, and we would stop at these certain places there in the Coal Canyon area of Castro Valley, and he would show us this area, and he said, look over there, Alan, and I'd look over there, and I'd see this bubbling coming up. He said, that's a well there. 
there. This area has got a lot of whales. This is why we think we're going to do very well here. And he pointed to whales here and whales there. You go to some parts of San Leandro. There are many parts of San Leandro that are on well water around here. And people have these, these well devices on the back there to help, to help keep, keep it pumping there. But, the, but these whales, they, they, this man showed me this well. And he showed this water that was bubbling up. It was being fed by underground springs. And so as they did so, these Jews would cite uh, Isaiah 12, 3. And they would say, therefore with joy shall you draw water out of the wells of salvation. Well, imagine this this morning. For seven days, that's what the priest would do. For seven days, they would get up early in the morning and he'd hold that gold pitcher in his hand and he would lead this procession out because remember, the, the Feast of the Tabernacles was celebrating God's goodness in their life and how he blessed them in their harvest and how he took good care of them in the wilderness and how he gave them shelter and he talked about God being a shelter during the time of storm and all of those things and he would lead them to this and they would go down the pool of Siloam each day and they would just get that water out and then he'd come back on top to the city of Jerusalem and then he'd come to the altar and he'd pour that water out upon the altar as a reflect, as if you would, symbolizing the pouring out of our lives and then that would end that. And then we would notice here that they did that for seven days and the Jews, the Jews would celebrate. It was a wonderful time. I mean, if anything they loved to do, they loved to celebrate on, the, on that Feast of Tabernacles. They loved to commemorate, celebrate God's goodness and there was such a euphoria and such a such a, 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 just an excitement in the air that you could feel as the water's being poured out that the voices of the Jews were going up in song as they were chanting Psalm 118 and Isaiah 12, 3. It'd be such a wonderful thing. Hey, brother and sister in Christ, we don't have to wait for a Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus is our Feast of Tabernacles, amen? We can celebrate Jesus all the time. We can celebrate Jesus by ourselves. We, can celebrate, we ought to celebrate Jesus when we assemble here as the people of God. And we can say it's better to put your trust in the Lord than to put your trust in man. And we can celebrate Jesus Christ, that he's wonderful and counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. We can celebrate Jesus Christ, that he's God of gods and Lord of lords. We can celebrate Jesus, that he's the Lamb of God for sinners slain. We can celebrate Jesus, that he's coming again. I'm just saying this morning, thank God today, we have a Jesus who is our tabernacle today. Many believe that the, uh, that Jesus, when he was born, was not born around the time of December, which would be very cold in the Judean hills, but but many believe he was born during the time of the Feast of Tabernacles. And some of the idea behind that was there in John 1.14. Because the Bible says in John 1.14, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Well, that phrase, the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, being made flesh, means I, basically here, it means the Word, that means he tabernacled among us. And we go over to Revelation chapter 22, and it talks about the tabernacle of God is with men. That speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ. Many believe that our Lord was born during that time. We look at the Feast of Tabernacles, and we see two things as we see the Feast of Tabernacles for every Jew and for every believer here today it speaks so wonderfully first of all that the Feast of Tabernacles pointed to the first coming of Jesus Christ it pointed that the tabernacle come of God has come and dwells among men aren't you thankful today Jesus came to die for your sins Aren't you thankful today the tabernacle of God came and dwelt among us and we beheld his glories of the only begotten of the Father full of grace and truth. But it says secondly that as we look at Zechariah 14 and we look at Revelation 22 that Jesus our tabernacle is coming again. Oh brother and sister in Christ I want to implore you today don't treat Sunday, don't treat every day going forward from here as just a regular day and a routine day. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus could come morning, night or noon. He's going to come in the twinkling of an eye. 
He's going to come in one one hundredth of a second. And let me tell you this morning, when Jesus comes, there's going to be a time of suddenness. It'll happen suddenly. Saved drivers of a car will disappear. Saved pilots of an airplane will disappear. You say, well, what if I'm on the plane? Hey, if you're saved, you better get off that plane, amen? You're going up, amen? If you're still on that plane, you're not saved, amen? I mean, I'm just saying today, hey, I can imagine people sitting at a diner somewhere. I can see people sitting down somewhere and eating Maybe a round table eating pizza, and the saved person putting that pepperoni pizza in his mouth, he's gone. He's gone up. Amen? The one who's not saved, he's still got the pepperoni pizza in his mouth. He's still here, okay? And I, and I say that. We laugh at that. But it's the reality of when the second come, when Jesus comes for us, there'll be a time of separation. Better sober up. You're saved. You're going up. You have somebody unsaved. They're staying here. We need to be serious about the fact our Lord is coming soon. That's why John, near the 100 years of age, he wrote in 1 John 2.28, Now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence not be ashamed before him at his coming. Listen, we look at this wonderful celebration and look forward to the first coming of Christ. We look forward to the second coming of Christ. We see this wonderful celebration. It says the feast of the tabernacles was near. Notice number two this morning. We see the wonderful celebration, but let's get into what Jesus meant by all this. Notice we see the work of the Holy Spirit. Now Jesus, he's, if we go to chapter seven, in the beginning, Jesus in verses three, three to five, his brothers, his half-brothers and sisters, are, they didn't believe in him. That's tough when your family doesn't believe in you, amen? That's tough. It happens. By the way, if you're, if you're someone, you're discouraged because your family doesn't believe in you, hey, just be thankful that God believes in you, amen? amen. Just believe in that, okay? Just, just hang on that. But uh, they said, listen, you're, you're, hey, they, said, they, said, uh, they said, hey, Jesus, you're popular. Why are you hiding back here in Galilee? Go out to the big city. Go to Jerusalem. Feast the tabernacle. Go show yourself there. Go show them what you're doing. And Jesus told them, notice if you'll go there, go to chapter 7, please. He said something very startling in verse 6. I want you to notice this. Are you there? Say amen. amen. Jesus said unto them, my time is not yet come. He says, now it's not time for me to give my life. My hour has not arrived. God, God, by the way, God's on a timetable. Keep that in the back of your mind. God is on a timetable. Okay? He said, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. Now the word time is not, is not a, a, the usual word for time that we use. Like what time is it? The word for time that's used here in that verse means opportunity. Opportunity. Your opportunity is here. He's saying, my time, my opportunity, my calling, what God wants me to do is not yet on the calendar. It's not time yet. But your time is here. And he's reminding us God has a timetable that he works under. But the timetable we have for you and me is right now. Because the Bible says, behold now. Behold now is the day of salvation. Behold now is the accepted time. 2 Corinthians 6.2. Now. Boast not thyself of tomorrow for thou knowest not what a day may bring. The time is now. The Bible says in Romans 13, now is high time. And so Jesus told his brothers, my time has not yet come. And so he said, I'm not going up. Well, the feast tabernacles went on, and uh, they, they just, they went up ahead. Every, all, now, remember, all the men had to go back to Jerusalem. Jesus didn't go. Or so they thought he didn't go. 
And Jesus quietly, secretly, as we would say probably in our terms, incognito, okay? Jesus, Jesus went, without anybody knowing, he went up to the feast and just, nobody knew he was there. He was just kind of blended in with the crowd. And listen, the talk of that moment was not the celebration of the, of the Feast of Tabernacles. The talk of that moment, it was Jesus Christ because when those disciples left him in chapter six and they came back and those people in Jerusalem, listen, word had gotten around that he was, uh, who is he? And they're saying, is he here? Is he here? Certainly if he's someone famous, he'll be here. And they were mad at him because they said he made himself equal to the Father and they didn't want to accept that. And they were mad at him because he healed a man on the Sabbath day. And they were mad at him because everything they didn't want to have happen, he broke their traditions and their ceremonies and all these things, which were man-made anyway. So they're wondering if he's there, and he was there, but he just didn't announce himself. And then you notice here as we read chapter 7, midway through the celebration, Jesus, start, Jesus starts talking with them, and people start realizing he's there. And midway through this, and we don't have time to get into it, but midway through this, we read chapter 7 here, Jesus starts talking about judgment to come. He starts talking about his deity, and he's being very forceful and strong. He announces and tells them about his deity, that he is God, and that he and the Father are the same. And he says, he says Moses was good, but he says, I'm above Moses. And he said things like this in chapter 7, verse 24. Judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And he, they said, well, how do we know who you are and what you are? And in verse 28, the Bible says, then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, you both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true whom you know not but I know him for I am from him and has sent me and here's what's going on midway through this feast of the tabernacles you might see about the third or fourth day there Jesus is, is, is just bunny heads with them there's a face off between our Lord and these Jews well, that didn't distract the priest. The priest went on and did what his normal routine was. Very, very early in the morning, probably about 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the morning, he would get that picture, and he would still go out every day, and he'd lead that procession of people, pilgrims and citizen dwellers, and he'd hold that golden picture in his hand, and they would walk all the way down to the Pool of Siloam, 30, 45-minute walk, and he'd go down there, and he'd lift it up, and the Jews are chanting Psalms 118. It is better to put your trust in God than to put your trust in man and all that, and they're chanting that, and then he would dip that picture in, he would get fill it up with water as he filled it with water, he, they, would quote, they would quote Isaiah 12, 3 about the wells of salvation and the living water from there and then he would pour that water as he did so and there was euphoria, there was hype there was excitement and clapping hands and the waving of that lulab which consisted of the pot that lead, the palm and the willow and the myrtle tree leaves they would wave that and they would be so excited well that didn't stop them from doing that and so they just kept on contesting that and the people were still angry with Jesus during that, well now we get down to our verse of scripture, our passage go with me to chapter 7 verse 39 Verse 37. There's all this tension about Jesus. Boy, you mentioned Jesus now in society. There's a lot of tension now. Amen. Amen. You say, how do you know that? Let me, let me challenge you tomorrow. Grab a stack of our Easter flyers. By the way, get, get some Easter flyers. They're, just, they're, they're alive now. And you take some Easter flyers, and I want you to help me promote the Easter, the Easter outreach there. In fact, right back in the back there, in fact, inside your, your bulletin, we have, a, we have a cross back there. And we're, we're, gonna, we're gonna put this up tonight. You'll be back here tonight, I'm gonna talk about that. But I want you to take that form. We've got a prospect sheet. We want you to fill out with the names of people you're gonna pray for. We want you to think about a relative, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor. We've listed five categories of people for you to list at least one name. You can put more than one name. 
but at least categories of five different categories of people you can put down there. We want you out of sincerity of your heart to write those names down, put them on that cross, and you make a determination of your heart that those are people in the next 45 days you're going to pray for, that they will come to the Easter musical, or before that, there'll be an opportunity to get the gospel to them and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. We are looking to making a minimum of 40,000 contacts, 30 to 40,000 contacts during these next 30 to 45 days to get people to come to the Easter musical on Saturday night and Sunday morning and declare Jesus Christ, though he was crucified, yet he's risen from the dead and just explain the gospel and see many, many people come to Christ. But anyway, with that, with that being said, you notice, know, go back to our pastor's scripture here. It's on the last day, and there's all this tension about Jesus Christ, and so people are just kind of ignoring him, and they're just upset with him, and they're fuming, fuming in their hearts about who Jesus is and his claims of what he is. And I want you to notice this. The priest now, watch this now. The priest, the priest has done his last thing. This is the seventh day now, on the, actually the eighth day, the last day. And the priest has gone down. It's the last day of the great feast, and the priest has gone down one more time with that golden pitcher, and he's gone down, led this procession, and they're down there at the Feast of the Tabernacle. And watch this, don't miss this. He goes down that, he's going down there to the Pool of Siloam, and he puts that golden pitcher inside that water and he fills it up. And again, they're chanting Psalms 118 and they're citing Isaiah chapter 12 verse 3 and they know this is the last day and this is, this is the one that gets them all. He's gonna go back up to that altar. Now in those previous seven days, he would pour out the water one time and he would go those other days, he would circle the altar one time. But notice on this, on this very last day, he would circle the altar eight, uh, seven times. He would go around it seven times and on that seventh time after he did so, the Jews knew that this would be the completion. This is what all all glory be given to God. And you'll notice it's, he poured it out on the altar. And I'm gonna use this bucket here. As he poured out the water upon the altar, he lifted as high as he could. He would probably stand on his tippy toes and lift up as high as he could. And he'd hold it up. And the people were crying. You have to just imagine hordes of people crying and shouting out, glory to God, glory to God. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise God. Pour the water, pour it out. And as he's pouring out the water, the Jews are watching as he pours the water over the altar. As that very last drop of water comes out, the very last drop of water has come out and it's dripped itself on that altar. Notice in verse 37, our Lord and Savior, who our Lord Jesus Christ and his perfect timing. You'll notice in verse 37, our Lord makes a proclamation. Our Lord makes a proclamation that there's the roar of the crowd. They're crying out, hallelujah, praise God, glory to heaven, glory. That's all happened here. Then we're on the last day. And at that moment of time, our Lord makes a proclamation, verse 37. He says, if any man thirst, and when he makes that proclamation, he makes his voice is above the crowd. You know, when the rapture comes, the Bible says the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. Amen. You're not going to outshout Jesus, amen? amen? You might have a big bellowing voice, but your big bellowing voice will not outdo him. And he says here in verse 37, in the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried saying, if any man thirst, listen, the Jews for seven days were in control of that situation. They were in control of their formality. They were in control of their ceremonies. They were in control of their religion. They thought they were in control. And Jesus abruptly interrupted them. He changed all around. Let me tell you something this morning. Whatever's going in your heart, whatever's happening in your life, if you're not as close to Jesus as you could be, if you're not walking with God as you should be, if you're not living for the Lord as you ought to be, may I remind you today, Jesus has a way of just turning things upside down. 
And Jesus takes control of this situation. He takes control of this festivity. And he shouts out, if any man thirsts, as they saw that last drop of water, it's like everybody's shouting about the priest. And they turn around and say, who's this crying out? And they see Jesus shouting out, if any man thirsts. And Jesus had a way with natural things, getting people's attention. He could talk about a seed and a sower. He could talk about fishing for men. He could talk about being the bread of life. He could be at a well where a woman who was desperate for help, and he'd talk about living water. He'd be near the hillsides of Judea, and he'd say, I'm the, I'm the true vine, and my father's the husband. He'd have a way with, way with natural things of capturing the attention of people. May I say to you this morning, God has a way of natural things of getting your attention. God is a way of a birth of a baby, of capturing our attention. A man by the name of Enoch was 65 years of old, and the Bible says he had a son. His son's name was Methuselah, and it says at that moment of time, Methuselah walked with God. Something about the birth of a baby got his attention. There was something about a woman by the name of Hannah. She could not bear children. She cried out. She said, Lord, if you'll give me a man child, I'll give him back to you. And there's something about Hannah praying that prayer that God answered, and seeing Samuel offered to God and would be the great and last judge of that time period. God has a way of getting our attention. God uses funerals and the past of a loved one to get our attention. God has a way of using job situations, financial struggles, people relationship issues, things that go on, stress. And all. He has a way of taking these things to get our attention. And Jesus, as that last drop of water came out of that pitcher and went plunk on top of that altar, he turns around and says, if any man thirsts, and those Jews understood that. There are many of them that had ventured out the walls of Jerusalem and traveling from Jerusalem to maybe their homeland. Some of those pilgrims, and there were many, many pilgrims there, remembered those days they didn't have enough water or they didn't, they didn't provide enough water and they went days without water and they were thirsty. They remembered their throat being parched and their lips being chapped. They remembered that nagging inside the insatiable is if I don't get water, I'm going to die. If any man thirsts, they can identify with the feeling of thirst. They can identify with not having water for a long period of time. You can imagine as the sacred words of Jesus cried out, if any man thirsts, he captivated the attention of everybody there. Thousands upon thousands of people heard him. He said, if any man thirsts, the Jews knew what it meant to thirst. So they went out in the wilderness. The Bible says three days into the wilderness journey, they were thirsty because they had no water. God provided them water through a place called Mara, but later on, God took them to another place, and there was no Mara, there was no pond, there was no river, there were no bodies, well, they were out in the middle of nowhere there, and they were thirsty, and they got upset with Moses, and God talked to Moses, and Moses, here's what I'm going to do, this place is called Masa and Meribah. Here's what I want you to do. You take that old rod in your hand and I want you to strike a rock one time. And as he struck the rock one time, we read about this scripture twice, that as he struck that rock, that water would come out. I mean, just a rock, if you would, rivers of living water came out. And by the way, it gushed out. It wasn't a trickle, it gushed out. There was enough water that came out of that old rock that satisfied the thirst of three million Jews. Hey, I'm thankful Jesus can take care of anybody's thirst this morning. Amen? Amen. 
He touched that rock and the water came out. So the Jews understood that. Hey, Samson knew what it was to be thirsty. Samson was, in a, was between a rock and a hard spot. He had all these Philistines converge on him. They were going to kill him. And the Bible says he took, he found the, 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 fret, the new jawbone of a donkey. And he said, hey, I'm familiar with this. That can make a good weapon. It's long enough. And he said, it's hard enough. It's calcified. It's not been so old and brittle that it will break. And he used with that jawbone of a donkey. The Bible says in Judges 16 that he killed, he killed one. 1,000 Philistines with a jawbone of a donkey all by himself. But then he cast it aside and he called that area Lahiroi, which means the place of a jawbone. And as he got there, he started feeling thirsty because he had exerted himself and he was exhausted and he was tired and he was weary and he was not near anywhere any water source. And he said, God, if you left me here for thirst, would you let me here and die? And listen, God, God opened up a rock. The Bible says God clave a hollow place out of the rock where he was at and water gushed out and met his need. Hey, Samson understood what it meant to be thirsty. Hey, I'm reminded you today the Jews understood and a man understood but I remind you this morning our Lord Jesus Christ understood what it was to be thirsty our Lord was beaten he was beaten to a pope they pulled the hair out of his cheek they beat him across the face until he was unrecognizable they pulled the hair out of his head they beat him across the back with a, with a, with a, with, with a cord that filled with shrapnel that ripped his back apart they nailed him to the cross and all during those hours our Lord hung on that cross with the sun beating down on him he was already dehydrated before he got there and as he got on that cross he's dehydrated and he cried out with his words one of the seven last words of our Lord I thirst We understand physical thirst. We've been at place where we've thirsted, but do we understand the need of spiritual thirst? You see, we get thirsty physically, but we get thirsty spiritually as well. It's important it is to satisfy your physical thirst. It's important we satisfy our spiritual thirst. David said in Psalms 40, 42, verse 2, My soul thirsteth for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Do you thirst for God this morning? Do you thirst for his word? Do you thirst for his presence? Do you thirst to know more about him? Listen, don't be ashamed. If you do, don't be ashamed of that. Encourage those around you to have that same thirst. Later on, David wrote this in Psalm 62, 63, verse 1. O God, thou art my God. Early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee. My flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is. We see a proclamation. Would you notice, secondly, we see a precept. Jesus makes his proclamation. If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. What an astounding proclamation because that became the segue to a major doctrine of Scripture. And there, Jesus is elaborating on the third person of the Trinity or Godhead. Because Jesus in the Gospel of John, and we'll see more of this in a future message, but he takes some time to elaborate and help us to understand who the person of the Holy Spirit is. And notice here in John chapter 7, you have your finger there. He says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now we see two things here. As we read verses 37, 38, the first thing we see here is a fountain. Would you write that down? 
Because Jesus talks about drinking and the source of water, in the mind of the Jews is this idea of a fountain. Now a fountain could be equated with a well, if you would, as we talked about earlier. A well would be a water source that was fed by underground springs. It was synonymous, a fountain and well were synonymous with each other. And a fountain or well had to be a place where the water was being fed continuously so the water would be clean, it would be pure, and there would be less problems with contamination and, and, uh, and, and things happen to your body that would not be very, very good. And so Jesus is talking about a fountain. Notice again verses 37, 38. He says, let him come unto me and drink, he that believeth on me. Now what's Christ talking about there? Jesus is that fountain. Jesus is the well of salvation. He said, come to me and drink. Listen, Jesus is that fountain that's everlasting. And the Jews understood that. And the Jews knew what he's talking about. Because as Jesus doing it, was speaking this, deep in their thoughts, they had to go back to thinking of Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. And in Jeremiah 2, 13, there was a past concerning this fountain. In Jeremiah 2, 13, he said, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and and hew them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold the water. Now you have to understand the imagery that's, that's being used here. First of all, there, he's talking about a fountain that was reliable and a fountain, a well, that was bubbling over with living water and a fountain that had, was fed by these underground springs that was reliable and faithful that always can be counted on. And God was saying this. He says, you know, you Jews have got to the place you've committed two evils. Evil number one or sin number one, you have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Repeatedly we see this term living waters in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Listen, when he talks about living new waters, he's talking about your spiritual life and how you your spiritual life needs to be fed and needs to be satisfied and, and hydrated and nourished. He says, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Now, Jesus is that fountain, but the Jews could identify because they remember those stinging words of the prophet Jeremiah that said, you have forsaken me. Listen, this morning, what a terrible thing to forsake the Lord, to forsake the one who saved us, to forsake the one who gave his life as a ransom for many, to forsake the one who died on the cross for your sins and mine. What a terrible thing to forsake God and say, I don't need you. God and I don't want you God. I want nothing to do with you. What a terrible thing to forsake that fountain. And he says you've committed two evils. You've forsaken me the fountain of living waters. And in replace of that in place of that you've created a cheap substitute. He said you've hewed you out cisterns. Cisterns that can hold the water. Now was a cistern. Well a cistern back in those days where they would clave out they would cleave out a, an area perhaps it was a rocky area and that was surrounded by stone and they would dig it out with the hopes that they could, they could, they could pour water there. And they would, but the problem is with the cistern, a cistern typically was a dugout hole or, or container and, that, and basically you pour water into. But the problem was that water did not flow into it and they didn't have the treatment capabilities that we have today where you can store water and put some tablets in it to keep it clean. They didn't have that because over time there's no way they could keep things from happening in that water and, and, and insects from coming in there and dirt from coming in there and contaminated. But worse yet, when they dug out a rock in the side of the hole and they dug out a rock that sometimes there would be a crack that would develop on the rock and the water would seep out years ago when we, my father and my family moved to uh, the house my, my mother still lives in on Rhoda Avenue in Oakland my dad wanted more than anything else. He had a big backyard that he had, and he wanted to build a, a fish pond. And I remember helping him dig out that fish pond where there used to be some dirt. We, dug, we built it up, and we poured some concrete over that, and then he did all the brickwork around that, and he, he kind of he put some sealant on it, and he let it settle, and he put some water, and he drained it, let it settle, water it settled. And then the day came when he, got, when he poured the water, and he put his koi fish in there, and he put, his, he put his filter and all that kind of stuff there on there. But he was noticing every day as he went out to feed his fish, he noticed that the water level was dropping and dropping and dropping. 
So he took the fish out and he started studying it a little bit more. And he put the fish in a different container and he realized, unbeknownst to him, that you could not see with the naked eye. He could not see that there was a crack there that was seeping the water out. It was a broken cistern where water was leaking out. And I tell you this morning, a lot of us think we can find satisfaction by digging out our own hole, by digging out something that we think is better than Jesus Christ. And we pour our water in thinking that will satisfy. But the problem is that water gets contaminated. We find that if we go to drugs, the drugs can't satisfy. If we think we can get involved with illicit activity, that doesn't satisfy. If we think we can do this and that and all these things as a substitute for Jesus Christ, none of those things can satisfy. And God said, you've, you've, you've committed two evils. You've gotten two sins. One, you've left me. And secondly, you've made some cheap substitutes. And the problem with your cheap substitutes is that they're broken. There's cracks inside of them and they're leaking. They're broken cisterns. They can have no water. And I'm going to say to you this morning, listen, if you're somebody, you've, you've substituted something out for Jesus Christ. Hear the words of our Lord. It's a broken cistern that's leaking and it will do you no good. Jesus is the fountain. You must have faith in this fountain. He says, he that believeth on me. He's using the idea of, the, of this fountain, this water source, and helping them identify. He's the fountain. He's the fountain he talked about in Jeremiah 2.13. Believe on me. Have faith in me. Have faith that I'm God. Have faith that I died for you, that I'm going to die for your sin. Have faith that I'll rise again from the dead. Have faith in these things. Have faith in me. By the way, you can have faith in him because he did all those things. Amen. You can have faith that he's the creator of the universe. Have the heavens shall declare the glory of God and the firmament show of his hand. Hey, you can have faith. God made all that. The tapestry of the skies and the beauty of the weather and all of those things. Listen, no man could do that. There's no way it could evolve on his surface. It doesn't happen. God alone did all those things. Amen. By faith, we know that the worlds were framed by the word of God because the things which appear were not made by things which we see. We see the fountain, but you notice the living waters. In this precept, Jesus talks to them about living water. Out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. Now, who's the living water? Well, if Jesus is the fountain, you know who the living water is? That's the Holy Spirit. He tells us that in verse 39. He says, but he, this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive. Now, here's what he's saying. The moment you believe on Jesus Christ as your Savior... You call upon the Lord to be saved. Something wonderful, a series of things happen in your life that's so wonderful. Listen, number one, your sins are forgiven. Say hallelujah to that, amen. Your sins are forgiven. You become a son of God, amen. Your name is written in heaven, amen. You've got everlasting life. I mean, it's good, amen. But it gets better because at that moment of time, the Bible tells us that we, that we are sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. The moment of time, Jesus said, I've got to leave. I've got to go back to heaven. But he says, I'm going to send you the comforter. And the comforter is the Holy Spirit. The comforter means the one who comes along our side. He's your best friend. Aren't you glad about that today, man? He's your best friend. He stands on your side. He's with you and nobody else is with you. He stands with you and for you. The Holy Spirit stands on your side. He's our comforter. But the Holy Spirit, he seals us across our forehead. It says this, you belong to God and all the demons of hell and Satan can't touch you anymore because you belong to God. Now I belong to Jesus and Jesus belongs to me. And listen, across your head, you're sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. And there's something else. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. I mean, can you fathom this with me, brother and sister Christ? You and I, the Spirit of the living God, lives inside of us. We're saved. He's inside of us. You said, well, I'm a deadhead. Well, you know what? Deadheads still have the Spirit of God in them too, amen? He lives in us. 
And he's called the earnest of our inheritance. Long ago, long, long time ago, when you did a business transaction, you bought real estate, they would call the down payment the earnest. That meant that you made, you made a down payment in good faith that you're going to make the series of payments that follow that to follow through the transaction to buy that piece of land. And you know what the Holy Spirit does? He comes inside of us. He's the down payment for one day when we go to heaven that this old body, this old mortal is going to become immortal. Amen? Amen? We go from justification to glorification. Notice what he says here. Out of his belly show full livers of living water. You know what Jesus is basically doing here? He's telling them, listen, I got some good news for you here at at this Feast of Tabernacles. Water's been poured out. A lot of you are thirsty. You saw that last drop go go on top of that altar. I've got good news for you. I'm the living, he says, I'm the fountain. You believe on me. He that believeth on me, out of his belly shall flow rivers. What he's saying there? Well, number one, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So notice this here. We see the proclamation. Jesus said, if any man thirst, we see the precept. He tells him that this living water, these rivers of living water are 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 the spirit of God. By the way, it's not a river. It's rivers of living water. Amen. Many tributaries coming out of us. You might say you're leaking from different spots, amen, okay? Amen. And, but we see this from this precept, notice very quickly, we see a product. And the product is this, out of his belly, out of his life, out of his innermost portion. What did he mean by the belly? That was the, that was the, that was the heart of the individual. You know, you hear the term bowels of compassion? That's the heart of the individual. And he's saying out of the person's life, he says, shall flow rivers of living water. Hey, what God is saying here, if you're truly saved, you're truly born again, when the Spirit of God lives inside of you, you want the Spirit of God to have so much control of working inside of you that out of your life flows good things. Out of your life flows rivers, and not just rivers of junk, rivers of living water. Living water, I mean being an encouragement, bubbling up in other people's life, and encouraging people to grow, encouraging people to be positive, encouraging people to trust the Lord, encouraging people to do things that will God honor and glorify God. So notice these rivers of living water very quickly, if you would please. In Exodus 17, verse 6, he told, he, told, uh, he told Moses, he said, listen, you strike that rock in Horeb, and out of it will come rivers of living water. And he smote that rock, and it gushed out with water. So what does that mean? Well, when you're thirsting for God, and you need to be thirsting for God, when you're thirsting for God, listen, when you're thirsting for God, when you believe and have more faith, in, when you put your faith in Jesus, listen, he's, he puts the Holy Spirit in you, and rivers of living water come out. But if you're already saved, listen, that doesn't mean that the rivers stop. It just means this, your faith increases, and you have more faith in what God is able to do, and you keep on believing God to doing what God says he would do in your life, because without faith, it's impossible to please him. That, 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 to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and reward of them to diligently seek him. So notice very quickly this morning as we we look at this as we go on and live as we believe on the Lord as we live for Christ he says out of your life out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water what are these rivers real quickly number one the fruit of the spirit Galatians 5 22 23 but the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace long suffering gentleness goodness faith meekness temperance against such there is no law you know what that is that's the fruit of the spirit you know God's saying there that's what should be coming out of your life My wife and I were out sowing yesterday, having a wonderful time, enjoying the new spring weather. How many enjoying the new spring weather, amen? And I love this time of the year because we go scoping trees where they're hanging over people's fences. Man, we started seeing avocado trees, and I started getting covetous while out sowing, amen? I saw avocado trees, and people didn't know what to do with their avocados. I saw lemon trees. They weren't getting their lemons. They were getting avocado trees. We saw some orchid plants out there that were just blooming. It was just a beautiful day. We're watching all these things, and there's an abundance of them, an abundance of them. Notice the fruit of the Spirit. There needs to be abundance of all these fruit that the Bible speaks of here. How's your love? 
How's your joy? How's your peace? How's your meekness? How's your patience? How's your long-suffering? Against such there is no law. Hey, listen, the rivers of living water are the fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, the rivers of living water is the filling of the Spirit. The Lord uses an analogy in Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine. If you're filled with wine, you're intoxicated, you're controlled by the wine. But be filled with the Spirit of God. That's an imperative. If you don't desire the filling of the Spirit, you need to spend some time with God. Because we need his filling. We need his power. You won't have a great marriage if you don't have the filling of the Spirit. You're not going to be a great Christian if you don't have the filling of the Spirit. You won't win souls if you don't have the filling of the Spirit. You won't see prayers answered unless you have the filling of the Spirit. He says, listen, we need to have the filling of the Spirit. Hey, that's one of the rivers of living water is having the filling of the Spirit, the work of God in your life. And my, but notice something else here. We see the fruit of the Spirit and we see the filling of the Spirit. But notice there's the fortifying of the Spirit. And here's a great promise you can seize upon this morning, Romans 8, 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Aren't you glad he's your comforter? Amen. For we know not what we should pray for. How many, don't raise your hand, how many feel like sometimes I don't even know what to pray? I like it when I'm around new believers. I say, hey, brother, would you pray? And they say, me? I don't know what to say. What am I supposed to say? And they get real scared. And many of these, because they're not sure what to say in, in, in public there. But notice, the Bible says, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit, who's that? The Holy Spirit, maketh itself, maketh intercession for the groanings which cannot be under. You know what he's doing there? It's kind of like this. When my wife and I wind up at a home where the family's Chinese speaking, or I'm with, with Brother Eugene or Brother Reyes, and we're at a home, the Spanish, or Brother Justin, we're at a home that's Spanish speaking, I turn to them, and I say, I can understand a few words, but once you guys start getting into it, I, I'm lost, okay? I don't know what to say. And so I'll tell them, I'll say, can, can you help explain this to them? And they tell them exactly what I'm trying to say. That's what the Holy Spirit's doing. He's making groanings for us which cannot be under. He's speaking on our behalf. He's representing us through the Lord Jesus Christ and bringing our petition to heaven. Don't be ashamed and don't be fearful. If, you're, if you feel like you prayed a prayer, and God doesn't hear you, God knew exactly what was in your heart. That ought to encourage you this morning. Amen. So notice we read verse 27 here, and he says, And he that searches the heart knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Hey, praise God, this morning we see, the, we see a wonderful celebration. We see the work of the Spirit as we close this morning. How do we pull this all together? The fountain is Jesus. The river is the living water, the Holy Spirit. Listen, well, out of your belly, my belly, that's talking about you and me. God wants us to have the fruit of the Spirit. God wants us to have the, he wants us to have the filling of the Spirit. God wants us to have the fortify of the Spirit. The Spirit's right there for us. So what does that all mean? Well, notice as we close this morning, notice a welcoming summons. Now, God doesn't leave you and me hanging. There's an action plan here. And what God wants you and me to do is, is accept his invitation. And as we close very quickly, notice this morning, this summons, this, this invitation is an invitation to get the Spirit's power for service. In Isaiah 44, verse 3, he says, For I will pour water upon him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. Listen, every time I read Isaiah 44, 3, there's a thirsting, there's a craving in my soul. I want more of God. I've got to have more of the Holy Spirit. And my prayer for you this morning is that you say the same thing. I want more of God and more of the Holy Spirit. I will pour floods upon the dry ground. Hey, you're dry, you're parched, you're thirsty. You've got to get that water this morning upon your life. Amen. So the invitation for service, but notice the invitations for salvation. As we close the book of Revelation, the Revelation, John said this, and the Spirit and the bride say, come, 
And let him that seareth say, Come. And let him that is a thirst come. And whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. You know what he's saying to you? You're not saved. You're not 100% sure you're going to heaven. You never called on Jesus to be your Savior. You know what he's telling you very simply? Come. Come. If you want the water of life, come. You're thirsty, come. The Spirit says, come. He invites you to come. Be saved. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait till next year. Get saved right now. Amen. Years ago, there was a Peruvians that were coming up the Amazon River. And they were in one of their makeshift canoes. There was a number of them there. And they saw this ship which was right at the mouth of the Amazon River connecting the Amazon to the ocean outside. And the ship was more on the Amazon River side, but it was right near the mouth of it. And they noticed the ship was stationary. It was just kind of bobbing up and down. And they didn't see any activity or life in the ship. And they looked over them. They, they, they peered over them. One of them swam over, went up into the ship. And he looked in the ship and he said, all these Spaniards, it was a ship that was sent, sent from Spain. All these Spaniards that were there that were just languishing there. And they could tell very quickly these men were dehydrated and dying of thirst. There was no movement on that ship. And so the Peruvians, they, they all got together. They said, sirs, what's wrong? Can we help you? They thought some disease or maybe they had been attacked by some natives in that area. And they said, no, we need some water. We need some water. And the Peruvians said, well, that's very easy. They said, you've got buckets here. Just drop your buckets on the side. Drop your buckets on the side and you'll have plenty of water. They said, no. They didn't realize they were at the mouth of the Amazon River and they thought they were still out on the ocean salt water area there. And they said, drop the buckets. They said, no, we can't. They said, just drop your buckets. Listen to and drop your buckets. And those men, because they were dying of thirst, they knew if they didn't get water soon, they would die of dehydration and thirst. They dropped their buckets on the Amazon Riverside and to their amazement, they took it up. They realized it was an abundance of fresh water. They drank of that water and their thirst was satisfied and their thirst was quenched and they realized right at that moment of time that they didn't have to die of thirst. They were right there in the spot where living water was. May I say to you this morning as we close, you're right in the spot where Jesus offers living water. Amen. Your bucket is your faith. You put your faith in Jesus. Say, God, I want you now to be my Savior. I want you now to come to my heart to wash away my sins and make me a child of God. Listen this morning, don't leave Heritage Baptist Church without first trusting Jesus as your Savior. I say to every Christian today, there ought to be a thirst in your soul. God should have touched your life as you saw that last drop of water come in that pitcher. I need more of God. I need more of God. My, my life is like a dry and thirsty ground. And I, he said, I'll pour water upon him that's thirsty. I'll pour floods upon the dry ground. You come this morning, get more of the Holy Spirit.